Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you here. A um, couple of thoughts before we launch into uh, the rest of our service this morning. Uh, some of you remember John and Barb Orkut, who moved down to Florida a couple of years ago. Um, John is in hospice care, and uh, Barb sent me a note the other day, and I have John's address, you know, caught up with all this coronavirus thing. She cannot even visit him in the place where he's at. But I have an address for John Orkut. Rather than read it, you don't have, if you don't have a pen on you, you're not going to write it down anyway. See me afterward. I'd be glad to give it to you. She's asking that we would send cards and try to encourage him um, while he's in these last days. Also, Kathy Yates is here. Kathy, I'm delighted you're here. Kathy's ex-husband, Rick, died last Sunday, and there are visiting hours this afternoon from 1 to 5 at the McNamara Sparrow Funeral Home in Cohasset. That's on South Main Street in Cohasset. So those of you who know Kathy, we have an opportunity to support her, and uh, you can certainly uh, give her your best in your prayers uh, here this morning, too. Why are we here? It's a question I've been asked a lot the last couple of days. Uh, aside from all the wrestling and the prayers and the decision-making and the pros and cons, at, at its most lowest level, most simple level, we are here because of just what we sang a few moments ago. We need the Lord. We need him every day. We sang that. And that we are the kind of people who, in the lowest valleys, will praise his name. That's why we're here. That's what we have to offer this morning to the world around us. I'd like to ask you to turn on the back page of your notes. I wrote a prayer that I'd like us to read together. A prayer in the midst of the storm. Let me read this out loud, or have us read this out loud together, and then I'm going to leave some just quiet time where maybe you can add your prayers to the Lord at this time. Let's do this together. Lord, we call upon you as the coronavirus storm rages around our nation and our world. Only you have power to quiet the storms. Fevers and illnesses flee when they hear your words. We humble ourselves before you, powerless. The nations retreat this week in hope. Some may tremble and give way to fear, but we will call upon your name. From the midst of the storm, we call upon your mercy. From the midst of the storm, we ask you to unleash your power to heal. From the midst of the storm, we remember your mighty acts in the past and ask that you quiet this raging storm. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. God, hear us as we lift our prayers to you. Lord, in prayer we lift up to you the names of those we've just mentioned. We think of John Orkut, that you would surround him with your strength and your care. We think of Kathy's family, that you will be their strength today, that they will have a sense that you are there, whether they knew you would be or not. We pray for our families and for our friends and for our neighbors. And we do pray together that uh, whether through miraculous means or medical means that you would bring an end to this time that we're in and to the fear that is sweeping the world. We pray for those who are, who are fighting for breath and we ask that your healing power would be unleashed upon them and set them free. We pray for wisdom for 
those who are making decisions in our state government, our local governments, in our nation. And Lord, this day, around the world, we pray that you would give great wisdom and that you would break down walls so that there is unprecedented cooperation from here to China. And we pray that in the midst of this particular storm that we're facing, that you would cause many people to fall on their knees, to raise their hands toward you, to seek you and find you. And we pray that you would demonstrate your compassion, your care, as well as your healing power in this time. Lord, we know that there are some who may think that we are silly fools for praying to our God in the midst of a time like this, in the midst of a force that it seems that no one can stop. And yet we open the scriptures and we find that when you were here on this earth, you spoke to the wind and it stopped. And you rebuked the waves and they quieted down. And you are the God who stands above all that we do not understand. And so we humble ourselves before you and we plead with you to show mercy on your people all around this world. Thank you for giving us the privilege of prayer. Thank you that there are some times when you wait until your people pray, until you do what you would planned to do all along, and you unleash your power. We praise you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture today is from Mark chapter 11. We've been marching our way through the gospel of Mark. And uh, let me dive right into this. You can read along with me if you want, or just let me read it either way. Starting in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out from the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will happen, it will be done for you. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. I'd like to present this morning two contrasting portraits of Jesus. The first is tied to the season that we're going through right now. The second is rising from Mark chapter 11 as we're continuing on in this series and our, our journey with Jesus through Mark's gospel. The first portrait is of finding peace in the midst of the storm. 
One verse in particular, John 16, 33, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's in that upper room discourse on that final week as he's leading toward the cross. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Part of what we're looking at is the process of finding peace in the midst of the storm. I found this particular uh, picture that you're looking at behind me with that, that great statue in, in Argentina of Jesus standing over the city. But in this particular day, the storm clouds had been gathering and the sun is just beginning to break out through the storm. And it reminded me of, of the power that Jesus displays in a lot of ways. While reflecting on the difficulties of this week, I also thought of another picture of Jesus calming the storm. This particular picture was painted by, by uh, Dutch artist Rembrandt von Rim, commonly called Rembrandt, in 1633. Interesting, we're talking about John 1633, and he painted this in 1633. Just one of those weird circumstances. For several years, this particular painting was featured in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. But then in 1990, two thieves broke in and stole the original. This is one of the most famous paintings in the world. And the painting was the only seascape that was ever done by Rembrandt. If you look closely, you'll notice that the, the disciples are pulling on the sails and they're doing whatever they can towards the top of the boat on that upper region that's lifting up into the waves. But down on the bottom of the boat, on the lower side, Jesus is there with calm all around him in a state of rest. Now, see the contrast with me that rises from this one verse in John 16, 33. Jesus makes two statements, and we look at them side by side. The first, he says, in me, you may have peace. And then he says, in this world, you will have trouble. There's a powerful message in that particular contrast. In Jesus, we find peace, and yet in our world, we find seasons of trouble, times of trouble, times even of, of tribulation. Our world is a troubling place, but in Jesus, we find peace. This is why we are here today. We have a message to our fellow, fellow Christians and also to our neighbors that living with Jesus at the center of your life is the only way that you and I find peace in the midst of circumstances that we are unable to control all around us. Even in the midst of the storm, Jesus still offers that peace to people today. And that's the message that you and I need to take to the world around us. We are unable to control anything that happens in terms of the circumstances that are around us. We have to react to those. But even in the midst of the most troubling times we can ever know, you and I are able to access the peace of Jesus he is the calm in the midst of the raging storm. That's the first portrait. The second portrait comes from our study of Mark, and it's the portrait of an angry Jesus. Months ago, as we were breaking down these different chapters and trying to pick which snapshot from each chapter of Mark will we focus on, and I, I chose this one because it presents an unusual picture of Jesus. I titled this particular message, Angry Jesus. We, we like Jesus in the manger. We like the, the calm Jesus. We like the peace-filled Jesus. But this is a different portrait of Jesus, angry Jesus for a reason. 
Verse 25 leads us into this thought. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benchers of those who were selling doves. The second portrait that I'd like to show you, this particular picture uh, was painted around 1655 by an Italian man named Bernardino Mei. And today it's in the J. Paul Getty Museum, which makes this available for free to nonprofit groups like us this morning. Note the features of this depiction of Jesus. Jesus here is strong, with a homemade whip in his hand. Men, women, and children alike are scrambling to get out of his path. I looked at several well-known pieces of art that all had to do with this particular scene and this particular snapshot in the ministry of Jesus. I realize that we live in a different time, but most of those portraits seemed too tame based on the way that I read this passage. Because the artists regarded Jesus as holy and pious, it almost seems that they had a hard time of drawing the anger of Jesus. We're always drawn to the gentle Jesus. But in this moment, he was anything but gentle. So I'd like to raise a couple of questions. The first one is, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? The second one rises from that. Why was Jesus angry in the temple courts? Let's take the fig tree question first. Verse 12 says, The next day as they were leaving Bethany, which was a a village nearby Jerusalem, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard him say it. There are two clues to the question that we have. Why did Jesus curse this tree? The first clue has to do with timing. So Mark tells us it was not the season for figs. This fig tree was curious, though, because it had leaves but no fruit. With it not being the timing for figs, there should have been no leaves on the tree if there were no buds that were going to to bear fruit. Leaves would arrive along with the buds that would eventually become the figs that would make this a productive tree. Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Roman soldiers in the right season would pick the buds from these fig trees and they would eat them as snacks. So that right from the beginning when the buds show up, they were edible. That means that these leaves were out of season and they gave the false impression that fruit was coming or that fruit should be there. A fig tree with leaves yet no buds fit one of two conditions. It was either a sick tree or there was something so wrong that it was actually dying on the inside. A tree in this condition failed to serve its purpose and really was usable for nothing but firewood. And then there's a second clue. The first one is the timing. The second one is the location. Jesus and the disciples were on their way, leaving Bethlehem and heading toward Jerusalem to the temple. He had gone to the temple the night before just to check things out. The, night, the day before was when he had, had ridden into the city on a donkey with that triumphal entry that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And after arriving in the city, he and the disciples went into the city late at night when everything was quieting down and just looked at the temple. And he was about to come back. He knew what he had in mind for that day. Jesus knew that he was going to address 
the business that had overtaken the courtyard inside the temple area. And so the fig tree acted as a living parable for the disciples, reflecting the scene at the temple. We know this because after Jesus overturned all of those things inside the temple courtyard, the disciples noticed that the fig tree he cursed had withered. The point was that Jesus was making a commentary about the temple system. And a temple system that was all show with no spiritual fruit, no longer fulfilled or fit the purposes of God. That becomes a little bit clearer when we look at the second question. Why was Jesus angry that day in the temple courts? So we go back to the same passage and we read a little bit further. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? I have a question for you. What would it take in you to cause furniture-throwing anger to arise in your life. You ever been there where there was furniture-throwing anger? Okay, you don't have to raise your hands. I see a couple of very uncomfortable looks. But let me tell you a story, a true story. There was a time earlier in my life when my brother and I were quite a bit younger, and we got into some things that really broke our parents' hearts. This particular scene involved my brother. It happened when I was away during my first year of college. My mom never drank a drop of alcohol in her life, and she never wanted it in her house. But one afternoon when she was at work, my brother had a bunch of his buddies over to our house, and they got a case of beer, and they turned it into a party. And it was one of those parties where a couple of kids called friends, and pretty soon the house was filled with all of these buddies of my brother's. And they were having a good time. And then for some reason that I never figured out, my mom came home early from work. She was a head nurse at South Shore Hospital, and she always worked like, like her schedule was like clockwork, but she came home early, right in the midst of this party that my brother was throwing. And she walked in from our garage into the basement where my brother was with most of his friends, and she absolutely flipped out. She started grabbing beer bottles and throwing them into the fireplace and smashing them and then picking up more and, and, and throwing them on the floor and pretty soon there was glass and there was beer all over the basement of our house. And at one point, she looked at my brother and she actually yelled out these words with tears streaming down her face. My house will not be a bar room. And she went upstairs and she locked herself in her room. My brother's friends scattered like rats, except for one buddy who stayed with him. And for the next couple of hours, my brother and his friend picked up all of the glass and put it away, and they wiped up all of the, the beer that was on the floor in the fireplace, and they washed it all down. And my brother said that his life began to change that day when my mom flipped out. It was never seen like that again in our, in our house. It was a one-time event. Now, with that in the backdrop, this furniture-throwing anger that my mom exhibited on that day, go back to the scene of Jesus in the temple courts, and let's unpack this a little bit. The first thing I want you to do is notice the action. He overturned the tables of the money changers, we are told, and the benches where people were selling doves. 
So we have to figure out what was going on behind that action. Jesus was upset, and then he upset the buying and selling of sacrifices in the courtyard. So we're inside the temple, which was not just a building. The temple had gates and walls around an area that had several courtyards, and then there was a, the temple building itself that was in the center of all of that. And people typically brought sacrifices on the high holy days. The sacrifice that you would bring depended to a certain degree on your wealth. So that a common person might bring a, a lamb or a goat to be sacrificed. A very wealthy person might bring a larger animal. A poor person would bring a dove or maybe a pigeon to be sacrificed on those days. This activity of buying and selling started as a service to people who traveled great distances to get to the temple in Jerusalem for one of the high holy days. We know that this particular week that Jesus was in was going to end with the Passover celebration when people typically would, would sacrifice lambs. And so some began to recognize it was a great difficulty to carry animals from a distance. And sometimes the animals would become hurt or blemished in that traveling when they were supposed to bring spotless animals for the sacrifice. So the priests began to oversee a system where they would provide animals that had been pre-approved, pre-approved lambs, pre-approved doves, and so forth. And they would sell them to people as a convenience. But over time, two things happened. The first was they would mark up the price. The second was that the temple had its own system of coins, and they only accepted for the, the value of an offering the temple coinage. And so there was money changing from one currency that might be the Roman currency into the currency that they used in the temple. And there was a second markup that came with that process. And over the years, this had become a corrupted process, no longer just a convenience, but it was a money-making scheme. In the process of selling pre-approved animals and the change rate for temple coins, people who came to worship God were being ripped off due to the greed of the religious leaders of Jerusalem. So we looked at the action. We looked at the scene behind the action. And now notice the location of the action. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those people. He entered the temple courts. So he wasn't in the temple area itself where the priests led the worship. He was in one of the courtyards. And there was a series of courtyards. And as people were more and more uh, fit or approved for worship life, they were able to move to the closer courtyards. But there was a courtyard for men. There was a courtyard that was separate for women. And there was a courtyard for the Gentiles, which was actually the largest courtyard in the temple complex and the one that was farthest away, nearest to the gates. Guess what? This is where Jesus found them filling up that area with the buying and selling of animals and the changing of money and the very area that was supposed to be the area where non-Jewish people, in other words, people from all of the nations of the world, could come and call on God, find quiet time to meditate on what they knew about God, or to pray to him, this was the area that was completely used up and filled with the buying and selling in this corrupt process that we just detailed a moment ago. The technical name for this was the court of the nations or the court of the Gentiles. This is why Jesus utters these words, 
my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. He was quoting from Isaiah chapter 56, which foretold of the nations finding joy in the house of prayer during the time of the arrival of the Messiah. I'd like to show you another painting. This is a more modern one. I kind of think this one fits what I just read and what I just described here of angry Jesus. This is Jesus, even in control, expressing his rage over the situation. Now, it's an artist view. It's, it's not exact. You and I have to use some license of this. But this is what I have in mind when I think of Jesus overturning the tables, not calmly and meekly and mildly, but this is a table-overturning, furniture-throwing kind of anger that was part of Jesus' just and righteous anger over corruption that had overtaken a place that was supposed to be a house of prayer for all of the nations. And Jesus' heart was broken because of this process It meant that there was no longer room for the Gentiles at the temple. Now, one of the false concepts that some of the Jewish leaders taught in the first century prior to the coming of Jesus was that when the Messiah would come, he would chase out all the foreigners from Jerusalem and they wouldn't be allowed at the temple. It shows how reversed things had come from the days of the prophecy of Isaiah and from the expectation and the heart of Jesus. The very thing that people thought they were looking forward to in the time of the Messiah ran absolutely contrary to the heart of Jesus. By overtaking the court of the nations for a corrupt system, they had lost sight of God's vision for all the world. And this resulted in a display of righteous anger from Jesus. It was a righteous anger when the purposes for the temple were no longer followed, and no longer mattered. So here's the big idea for this morning. People break the heart of Jesus whenever our desires replace the purposes of God. And you know what's hard about a big idea like that? You and I are capable of doing that at any time in any season of our lives where our desires overrule the purposes of God. That leads to the final observation And the final observation has to do with these comments that Jesus makes about prayer. This is one of those areas where a lot of times people get in trouble by separating the words that Jesus says here from the context in which he said them. So my observation is that Jesus' comments about prayer are tied to God's purposes. Notice what he says. In the morning, as they went along, they saw a fig tree. The fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus answered, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will happen, it will be done for you. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Verse 20 ties the context of this discussion about prayer to the lesson of the fig tree. We already noted that the fig tree was cursed because it failed to fill its purpose. 
Once a tree does that, it is no longer of use. It's ready to be cut down and used for firewood. Peter marveled that Jesus had said a few words to the fig tree, and by the next day the tree had withered. Now think of it. Jesus is the son of the creator, and the tree no longer fit the creator's purpose. Therefore, his words were only uttered in line with fulfilling God's purposes. He was not saying that prayer gives us carte blanche to ask for whatever we want at any time, in any way, or any form. This is treating prayer like God is a genie in the bottle. I can ask whatever I want at any time, and God has to give me what I ask for. Rather, Jesus was saying that God empowers prayer that we utter, prayers that we utter when these prayers line up with his purposes. So the comment that he made was to the fig tree, you're of no use. And he was using the fig tree as a parable about what had happened to the temple, that even though there was lots of activity going on, the heart of the people were far from God that day. Sometimes, when we pray in line with God's purposes, God answers in dramatic ways. It's not always instantaneous. I was thinking about this last night. Years ago, when we had no money as a church, we began to pray for land. Very early on, we realized that we were growing from the very small band that we started with, and we were outgrowing our second rental place. We started in the Pembroke Community Center, and after five or six months, we outgrew that. And then we had space over in Corporate Park, where we started with 5,000 square feet, and then 7,500, and then 10,000 square feet. And we were filling that up twice on Sunday mornings, and we were causing parking jams all up and down Oak Street. And the police were very unhappy with us on really large days because we created somewhat of a, of a nightmare all along Oak Street. And we've been praying for land. And it took years for that prayer to be answered, but the piece of land that we are sitting on today was the number one site that we identified back then. We looked at more than 40 different sites. And we asked about it. We actually made a pitch for that. I remember when Jerry Kamen and Alan Fisher and I went and met with the Tedeschi family, they literally told us, you guys have champagne taste and a Diet Coke budget. Please leave us alone. And then about five years later, they ended up giving us this amazing piece of land, 44.2 acres. And when it was valued, it was worth $8.5 million dollars. Folks, we paid $500,000 for this land. That's an answer from God because our prayers fit his purpose and he surprised us in the way that he answered and in the timing and we take no credit because we'd given up. We were on to the next most likely site when the Tedeschi brothers changed their minds. That's a God thing. And when we stepped out in faith and we we talked about building this facility. We didn't have the money to build this facility. We weren't even close. It took more than 40 banks to look at our applications for one bank in New Hampshire to take a chance on us and give us the amount of money we needed to build this facility. That was an answer to prayer because what we were doing fit God's purposes. And God supplies his needs when we ask and when we ask in line with his purposes. So today we pray. We pray for things that are beyond our control, beyond our ability to make happen. And some people might think that we are a little bit nuts for doing that. I don't. Because the prayers that we've already seen God answer are as great as if 
God had said, tell this mountain to move, and it moves. This land was mountain number one. This building was mountain number two. We are not silly when we ask God to do things that fit his heart, and we call on God to act with mercy on the nations. We have no control over when and how or if God will reply or if God has another answer in mind. But we are in keeping with what Jesus was teaching that day in the temple courts when we humble ourselves and we pray. Thanks for being here this morning for just that reason. Let's pray one more time. We're going to sing one more song and um, we're going to head back off into our silent retreats all around the South Shore. God, thank you for this picture of Jesus being upset when people of faith corrupt things and do not act like people of faith and purpose. Thank you for this picture of Jesus teaching his disciples that mountains move, that great things are done, that the impossible becomes possible when we are aligned with your purposes and then when we call on your name. We pray once again that you will show mercy on your people. We know that you are a God of mercy. You're a God of kindness. We know that we live in a broken world where there are all kinds of things that happen, things that are beyond our control. Sicknesses come, diseases happen. They fall on the good and on the unrighteous alike. But we pray that you will shower your mercy on all for the sake of your name, for the sake of your people. In Jesus' name.